whenever you're given a demonstration of a product and you're trying to prove its worth, you always want to make sure that it actually works. And uh, I found that out recently when I read a story. You're going to think this is crazy. Somebody wore a uh, stab-proof vest. They've created this stab-proof vest in order to stop all of these stabbings that are going on in workplaces and things like that. This guy said, I created this stab-proof vest. It works incredible. So the reporter said, put it on me. Put it on the reporter. The third time he got stabbed when he said this, the, the vest was stab-proof. That is not the type of reaction you want when you're trying to get a product out there. He's jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. It breaks through and hits the reporter. That is bad PR for your product. What I'm going to offer you tonight, though, I am confident it works 100%, okay? No need to worry about that. And it is what happens when you make the choice to live a repentant life before God. The ease of handling problems, because living a repentant life is not going to eliminate problems, but the ease with which you will be able to handle them is incredible. And the joy you will feel as you begin to live the life that God wants you to live is incredible if we live a repentant life. And if you did the lesson, you will know that Ephesians chapter 4, 25 to 32 basically describes what a repentant life is going to look like. In fact, flip with me to Ephesians 4. Let's just make sure we get this. Our section is connected to the previous section, which we read is all about our thought process. If you call yourself a Christian, if you believe by the grace of God you've been saved, you put your faith and trust in Christ, he's taken your sin debt, giving you righteousness, uh, not based on any works of your own. If you believe that, then you must think a different way. Remember, you can't think as the Gentiles do, which is very selfishly and driven by greed. You must think selflessly and with gratitude towards what God would want from you. And so, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, we have this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That therefore connects us to the last section. And when we get to that point in time and we're connected there, we need to always realize that the Christian life is a different life. Okay? You cannot claim to be in Christ and not be a new creation. And the way you get there is through repentance. And if you take a look at verse 24, verse 23 and 24, uh, 22 through 24, it says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what you have there, although the word is not said, is basically what repentance is. Repentance is putting off of something and putting on something else, adopting a new way of life and leaving the old one behind. So what I want to do tonight is I want to teach you the value of repentance. Let's put that down number one on our outline. Let's see the necessity for repentance. I want you to feel the necessity of repentance. And that's basic to your entrance into the kingdom of God. One passage just to write down Jesus' first words in Mark chapter 1, Mark 1, I think 14 and 15. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe. And you're going to see those two things go together often. And in fact, it's probably good to think of it this way. The scriptures often talk about that, uh, Hebrews 6.1. Uh, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Repentance and faith are often talked about together, so much so that you never can repent without having faith, and you never have faith without repentance. To try to rip one from the other is to lose 
uh, the whole altogether. They're distinguishable, but you can't divide them. Repentance and faith. And that's what happens in Mark chapter 1. But I want you to see this in Acts 26. Go with me to Acts 26, verses 18 to 20. Talk about the fundamental nature, the necessity of repentance. You've got to see it as necessary to get into the kingdom of God. Acts 26. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Acts chapter 26, verses 18 to 20. We start at the end of verse 17. To whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Right there we have a a description of repentance. We are turning from something. We are leaving something behind. We're turning from darkness. Now we're in light from the power, or maybe a better translation, the authority of Satan to the authority of God. Why? That we might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified By faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient in this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea and also to Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. We want to always remember this idea. When someone is talking to you about repenting and putting their faith in Christ, this is what it means. I've turned from something, I'm turning to something. I've left one area, I'm under a new area. That means your relationship has changed to this old dynamic, and you have a new relationship with God, and that will manifest in your life. But never associate the repentance and faith as a work that is earning you salvation, because it's not a work that's meriting you salvation. In fact, if you think that, very dishonoring to God. We had a Christmas, you know, just a few weeks ago. We were deciding what to get Miles. You know, you get each kid a big present, and uh, we were figuring out what we were going to get Miles. Uh, I've told you before, we try to train him to learn how to save money. We go to the toy store. He picks out an item he wants. We teach him how to save money so he can earn up to save it. Uh, and there's this one thing he really wanted. It was this Buzz Lightyear power projector. He really wanted it. It was like 45 bucks. So we were teaching him how to save up for it. Well, in a moment of like, I, you know, it's Christmas. I'm just going to buy it for him. We're going to give it to him. He's really going to love it. And he did, man. It's, it's just one of those moments as parents, you get them, you catch them, you see their response. It's, you know, it's worth everything. Um, but when Miles got it later on that day, we were just talking back and forth. And he goes, look, Dad, I earned enough money to get Buzz Lightyear. And I thought, well, yes, Miles, you were saving to get this. But Daddy bought this for you as a gift. You actually didn't spend any money. See, your money's still here. We can spend your money on something else. This is not a gift that you earned because you can't earn a gift that I gave it to you. And in fact, as I felt myself explaining that to him, you know, I felt slighted a bit that he didn't understand the, the love that I had for him to buy that gift. Is that funny? Like, my heart was breaking that my son didn't understand that, and my pain to you, is that funny? Interesting. You and I, we can talk later. Wow. Pain is funny to you. Sounds good. But I look at that, and I think, yeah, you don't understand. I spent this for you. I, I wanted you to have this. And for you to think that you earned it, it, it kind of disrespects me in that sense. Well, in that sense to God, if I thought my repentance or my faith played any part in me earning my salvation, it would be the same slight to him because he gave it to me, Ephesians 2, as a gift. And that's what we want to view it as. Repentance is necessary to get in the kingdom of God, but it's not earning you anything at all. But once you get in, do you still need to repent? Absolutely. Go with me to 1 John Chapter 1, and understand the context. We were in 1 John last year. 1 John, 
Look at chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, and see what it says here. Should we continue to repent? Absolutely, we should. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, John's including himself right there, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's talking to Christians there at that point in time. So if I'm a Christian now and I say, hey, you know what? I'm, I became a Christian. I'm done with that sin thing. You know what? I no longer get hurt. I no longer am bitter. I'm no longer angry. I've gotten rid of all that stuff. I'm, a, I'm deceiving myself. But, talking to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's talking to Christians there at that point in time. We shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that after we've repented and gotten into the kingdom of God, that we will be perfect. We won't be perfect. We will never live perfect lives, but we must live repentant lives. You know the, the number one theses, is that what you'd say? Thesi? Martin Luther wrote 95 Theses or theses? Theses. Sounds like something else. Theses. <laughs> Won't say what it is. I've already got a rough crowd already. I think that person knew what I was talking about. Very upset that I brought it up. Martin Luther, number one thesis that he wrote was that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he talked about repentance, always wanted us to live a repentant Life. It's not just about repenting at the beginning and then I don't do it anymore. Martin Luther's point is, hey, that's going to happen throughout the rest of your life. And so that's what needs to happen as you move on and go forward. Now turn with me to Isaiah 55 just to see a great picture of this. We're again building the case of what repentance is, why we need to keep doing it. Isaiah 55, 6 through 10. What are we going to do? with our sin, and how is it going to help us? Isaiah 55, 6 through 10, very helpful section. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. So that's the idea that we've seen. Whenever I say repentance, I've always got to think, I've left this, and I'm going on to that. I've forsaken this, as the text says, and I've moved on. And if you've heard me teach on this before, you know that the idea of forsake is the same word that's spoken in Genesis to talk about what the marriage relationship is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Same word here. A man shall forsake his family. You have now entered into a new relationship where that relationship is not one of dependency. You've left that and you've started a new family. So when we have this mindset, you toward sin is this, Romans 6. Sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. When you repent, you are now having a new relationship to God. Sin no longer controls you. That's why you and I need to be very careful with our words. Whenever you're fighting sin, and you might have even said that this year so far, I can't stop doing this, should never come out of the mouth of a Christian. You now have a different relationship to sin. To say that I can't stop doing something insinuates that I am still tied together to the dominion of sin. But what do we read in Acts 26? You are leaving the dominion of Satan and you've now gone to God. So if you claim Christ in here, you claim to enter into the kingdom of God, I can't stop this should not even be in your verbiage. What you should change it to is this. I don't want to stop it. 
Because that's ultimately the reason why you're sinning. You look at the sin and you say, it looks more attractive to me than what God wants me to do. And that is the essence and the fundamental nature of your disobedience to God as your father. That looks more attractive. I want that. And when I start to talk about it that way, now I really put it in its right perspective. 1 John 3, 9 says this. No one who is born of God keeps on sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And notice this. He cannot keep on sinning. So I can't get to the point where I say, I can't stop this. i got to say, wait, I'm choosing to do this because sin doesn't have dominion over me. I need to stop this, forsake it, and now repent. That's exactly what the text is telling us to do. And notice how it brings it up in the text. You forsake the wicked ways and you forsake your unrighteous thoughts. You return to the Lord, verse 8. Why? Because God's thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways his ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is not telling us of the incomprehensibility of God. What this is instructing us to do is say, hey, the way that you live, you've got to forsake that and live the way that God is instructing you to live. The text in verses 10 and 11 tells us we're going to find that in the Word of God, and that's where we need to go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, because it's going to show us what a repentant life looks like. We've got to see repentance as necessary, And once we see that and we live that out in our daily lives, we're going to watch God begin to reform us and refine us so that, one, we're useful to his kingdom, and two, we experience the joy of relational bliss in marriage. Because it's talking here definitely about the body of Christ. I mean, that's what we're talking about generally. But if you think about the body of Christ and Christ's relationship to the church, that's analogous to marriage. A lot of the stuff that's going to play out here just in common relationships, if you brought this home to your spouse would do incredible things for your marriage. Let's just start talking about them. But let's get the point down first. Number two, not only see necessity for repentance and getting into the kingdom, but in keeping with it, but also number two, making sure your repentance is evident. People should see it in your life. It's funny how often you see that phrase. I think about it in a couple places that I've read. You know, Galatians 5 talks about it's evident, you know, what the works of the flesh are. You see people when they're doing wrong, you know what it looks like. 1 John 3, you know who the children of God are. It's evident when they do this. It's evident when the children of the devil live this way. So make sure your repentance is evident. The person it's going to be most evident to is your spouse, okay? Number one area, you go and you, you, you adjust this, it's going to bless your spouse, and you're going to see God do some wonderful things in your marriage. Look at the first one. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of us speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of of one another. So it's talking to us the fundamental reason why we're doing this. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to make sure that we're loving one another that way. But we now have a different relationship to lying. We no longer are okay to do this. Okay, We don't fudge the truth. We don't speak falsehood to people. We don't go after deceitful desires from the previous chapter. We go after truth. You know what is going to destroy a marriage if you can't? trust the other person. we got to learn to speak truth. And this is just an observation just from seeing the church in general. We don't usually have a problem with outright lies. What we have a problem with is partial truths. Don't you think so? It's not us coming and saying, hey, you know, the sky is purple when it's really not. You know, it's us coming and saying, oh yeah, I, I, I kind of took care of that. 
when I really didn't do it and I'm about to go do it. I, I say that just to kind of appease the situation, but a partial truth I would submit is a, a whole lie. When you begin to be okay with that, you are dabbling in the area of falsehood and you make yourself someone you can't trust. You must speak truth to one another. We serve a God of truth. John 8, 44, the, the devil is the father of lies. He's not your dad anymore. You have God the father, the God of truth. You better be speaking truth to one another. So if you're here in this room right now and you know you have lied to somebody, you better go make that right. You better do that. You, you should feel the conviction to say, I don't associate with the falsehood anymore. I feel so sorry I did that. I'm now adopting a new path, and, and I, I just want your forgiveness. We'll talk more about this in, in our words down in the, in the chapter, but let's go on to the next one. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and, and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, used to, when I read this list, I used to kind of think that it was just you know, a, a hodgepodge. They were just kind of, Paul was just gathering some miscellaneous uh, items and just putting them together. But I think you can definitely make a connection right here with speaking falsehood and truth and then being angry and do not sin. Because if you're not the person who lied, but you're the person who's been lied to, what's your first reaction? Anger, right? And you feel conflicted at that point in time because you read what the Bible says and you actually read later on, it says, uh, get rid of all your anger. How are we supposed to view this? Well, this gives us great clarity on how we are supposed to be angry in the type of anger we're going to have. If somebody lies to you, the appropriate response is anger. It's just, where does the anger originate and where is it pointed at? Those are the two things we've got to keep in mind to make sure that we have what the Bible would call righteous anger versus unrighteous, sinful anger. Where does it originate and where is it aiming at? If somebody tells you a lie, you should be angry at that because lies are dishonoring to God. God has commanded us to tell the truth. So if somebody lies to me, I am very angry that the name of God was dishonored. I'm very angry that people have gotten hurt around there. And so my anger, I think at that point, is justified because Paul commands you to be angry at that point in time. But with a caveat, don't sin. You've got to trace it back to its origin. Why am I ultimately angry at this? Why do I feel so much furious wrath in me right now because I've lied? Does it originate in the fact that God's holiness was marred? Or am I more like, man, that really hurt me. And now I'm going to let that person have it. You see, that's where the sinful anger comes in. If it originates because you are most hurt rather than the holiness of God, chances are you've got sinful anger going on and you're going to shoot it at the person. I think righteous anger is concerned for the holiness of God and shoots it at the problem. We've got to get rid of this. We can't have this anymore. We've got to deal with this. Let's go. And I think that that's where the anger should be directed at that point in time. Now, notice what it says. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's given us a little bit more hint on what type of anger is good and what type of anger is sinful. Because I think the, the righteous anger can be, can be measured and controlled but unrighteous anger is going to just fester for long periods of time. So if you notice yourself being angry and it's just, it's lasting and it's lasting and it's festering and it's festering and you're becoming bitter, that's when you know that you've now given opportunity to the devil. 
Now, I want to bring one point of clarification because I think some, we read it this way sometimes. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's different than what I think we think that means. I think we think that means do not let the sun go down till the problem is solved. That's not what the text says. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's going to be some problems that might take some time to work through. Okay? It might take a few days to work through those. It might take appointments with pastors. It might take appointments with small group leaders. It doesn't say you have to have the problem solved. It says you can't be sinfully angry. That's what we need to get rid of. If the problem's not solved, but we can both say, hey, you know what? I find myself being angry more than I should right now. I'm sorry, will you forgive me for that? That's what it's talking about, making sure the sun doesn't go down on that anger. Not that the problem's solved. Sometimes problems fester for a long time. The problems can fester. Our anger cannot because if our anger festers, we give a foothold to the devil. Uh, it's the Greek word for the foothold. I think it's uh, to, topos, like topography, where we get that idea of giving, you know, giving land to the devil, giving, him, giving in and giving him land. And it's funny how you can read certain things and be on the, you know, a different point in time in history and just realize the ominous effects of what go on. I was watching a documentary on the time right before World War II. And I think the prime minister in Great Britain, his, his last name was Chamberlain at that point in time, right before Churchill, he had a meeting with Hitler, okay? He sits down with Hitler, and I think to get the Treaty of Munich is what it's called at that point in time, he sat down with Hitler, and Hitler just said, just give me this little bit of land in Czechoslovakia. That's all I want. There's some Germans there. I only want that little bit of land. I'll be fine with that. You sit down and do that. Chamberlain came back from that meeting with Hitler, and he said, he's a reasonable, nice guy. Guys, France, we need, to, we, need to, we need to be on this side. Let's give him that land and let's let him have that. And he convinced everybody on the opposite side to get on Hitler's side and give him just that little bit of land. And that opened the floodgates for Hitler to do great damage. If you are sitting here right now and you are angry at your spouse, you have left that little opening for the devil to have opportunity in a playground in your marriage. And he will have a field day. You cannot do that. First of all, you really probably don't have the right to be as angry as you are because you're not as holy as God is. But second, don't you care enough for your spouse to repent of that anger so that Satan can't come in and destroy your marriage? Guys, we really got to take this into consideration. Is your repentance evident? Because if not, you are giving a foothold to the devil and it is a very dangerous place to be. Let's repent and let's move on from that. Make sure we don't do that. Look at verse 28. It just gives us another great example of what repentance is. Let the thief no longer steal, right? You've got to stop doing the bad thing. You can't take what is not yours. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And again, we see the full process of repentance. I'm a thief, I'm doing bad, wait, I can't do that, I'm a Christian, I'm repenting of that, I'm coming over here, and I'm doing work with my hands so I can give to other people. That's the full process of repentance. That's what we need to do with every sin, just follow the full spectrum of putting off sin and putting it on here. Then we get to verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now this verse should be 
highly evident in your repentance, the words that you say. That's the number one way you can tell that God is doing a work in your life. Why do I say that? Well, what does James say about somebody who can tame the tongue? They're a mature man, perfect, teleos, but I think more mature is the idea. If you can tame the tongue, you're a very mature person, and you watch the words that you say and the words that you, you don't say, and you're able to hold back and offer self-control. When you begin to see that, and you see it in your wife, and you see it in your spouse, the communication helps unify the two of you because you're not doing words of condemnation, but words of construction, edification, building up, which is really, really helpful at that point in time. I, I'm, not like, I'm not like the handiest guy in the world, okay? I think Pastor Ben gave an example. I'm not the handiest guy in the world, but whenever I want to like feel like I've put something together, like grab my tool belt, which I don't really have. It's like my son's tool belt that I put on, and I put like his fake drill in there, and I do that. I get something from Ikea that I can put together with my hands, okay? I feel real manly uh, with that, and that's the extent of how I build things. Love Ikea, though, right? How, how would I ever know that it's okay to have soft-serve ice cream and meatballs together than if I went to Ikea? I love Ikea. But we get these things, and the, they give us these instructions, and I'm, I'm building the, you know, let's say... Uh, the bookcase. I'm, building, I'm constructing the, book, the bookcase. I'm going to build it up. To do that, it's going to take time, right? It's going to take time, and it's, I've got to have instructions that I'm going to look at and figure out where everything goes. That is a process. If I'm going to speak words of edification, I can't imagine that it's just going to happen overnight, and it's just going to switch with the way that I talk. I do need some instructions, and God's given me a lot of instructions on how I should talk. So the more I go to the instructions and figure out, oh, yeah, that's, look at the way Jesus talked to his disciples or answered the Pharisees or listen to the way that God wants me to speak here in, in the book of James and talk this way. I'm spending time with the instructions and I'm constructing something. That's the way that I'm going to change my speech with somebody. If I could just give you three just quick things to look for in your words. Let them be biblical. Just If you want to have constructive words that are building up, let them be biblical words. The more you spend time in the Bible, you understand what God wants you're going to communicate that to people. That's going to give them the most grace if you're able to communicate that to other people. Be intentional. Secondly, be biblical, be intentional. Just, I'm going to do this today. I'm going to sit down, like the same way I'm going to sit down, I'm going to build this. Be intentional with your words. Hey, I'm, going to, I'm going to sit down, I know I'm going to say three things to my wife today that are, that's going to build her up, okay? And I'm going to do that. And then let them be genuine, okay? Be biblical, be intentional, and be genuine, Okay? If your, if your wife makes a mediocre meal, it happens, okay? Ladies, you make a mediocre meal sometimes, right? Anybody? No? We have perfect cooks in the room. Okay, I'm sorry. Guys, if you make a mediocre meal, wives, oh, who's, Chris, you're upset? Well, you're a good cook. I've really had your cooking before. You are a good cook. But you probably have made a me- mediocre meal every now and then. I think the last time I was over, it was, eh. Just, just speaking honestly, I want to speak truth. This said, speak truth. So I have to speak truth in that way. You make a mediocre meal, don't get up, this is the greatest meal in the world, sweetheart. Thank you so much for for cooking this for me. You are better than Gordon Ramsay. You are just so great. Let your words be genuine, okay? But when they are genuine and they match grace with the Bible, you're going to watch the relationship between you and your spouse be so encouraged. Our words can be so powerful. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You have the... (laughs) the ability to, to, to give life or to kill somebody with your tongue, just to be so sarcastic, to lie to somebody, 
You can, you can kill somebody with your words. You got to watch them, guys. Look, what does the text say? No corrupting talk. You know, there's those words that just even, the, even when you say them, they're so descriptive and I just even like the word moist. I just hate saying that word, right? Isn't that the grossest word? It's just like even when somebody makes a cake and they're like, oh, it's so moist. It makes me not want to eat the cake because I just don't like that word. Another word is putrid, okay? When I hear the word putrid, it just sounds gross, right? That's the translation of this word for corruption, putrid, right? You just think of something that smells disgusting. It's actually used in Matthew 13 to describe, you know, fish that's gone bad, okay? Bad smelling fish. You know that smell that is just so gross, so putrid. It's, it's disgusting. I was doing some reading on, uh, on a dive that went down to ti- uh, the Titanic to pick up some stuff from the wreckage. And the, the team would go down every now and then, pick some stuff up, bring it to a lab to test it and do some stuff. And the way that they describe the rot and decay that they bring up from there, they say it's, it's literally one of the worst smells you can ever imagine. It's, it's putrid in that sense. It's, it's disgusting. That is the environment you're creating in your home. That, that, that bad environment, if your words are harsh, if your words are lying, if, if your words are sarcastic all the time, you are, you're letting that stench in your home, and it just makes it a bad environment for everybody. But he was, he was describing a situation where somebody went down, and they pulled a satchel from there, and out of it they pulled perfume that had stayed good this entire time. They cracked open the bottle and listened to what he said. He said, suddenly, somebody opened up this leather satchel and out came the fragrance of heaven. All these flowers and fruity flavors, it was delicious. It was the most wonderful thing you've ever had. It was just completely overwhelming. The fragrance of heaven moves through the room. So instead of being surrounded by all these dead smells, for a few minutes, it was like the ship was alive again. The fragrance of heaven. Imagine if you just changed that in your home, that putrid smell because your words are so disgusting to to the fragrance of heaven because you give gracious words to your kids. You give gracious words to your spouse. That's a life of repentance. The life of non-repentance is you coming home and with your words stabbing people. But the life of repentance is you coming home and, and giving life, giving encouragement, giving rebuke where necessary, helping correct and direct your kids Do you have guard over your tongue? James says, with the smallest little spark, you can start a forest fire with it. We need to make sure we are watching our words, and that's one of the biggest signs of repentance. Take a look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We don't have much time to talk about this. We will talk about it more when we get to chapter 5 and being filled with the Spirit. We'll talk about more of the Spirit in the book of uh, Ephesians. But this is that mindset to look for. You will know you need to repent when you feel the grief of the Spirit. That is why if you don't feel the grief of the Spirit, you've got to check if you're a Christian because he is the Spirit of holiness. And when you do unholy things, you should feel conviction because you've grieved the third person of the Trinity. That's when you know. There's a great example of this. Just write down first... uh, 1 Samuel 24, 5. It's not specifically referencing the Holy Spirit there, but it's a great example of what to look for. David has had an opportunity to kill Saul in the cave. Doesn't take it, but he still cuts off part of his robe. And you know what? He says he was struck in his conscience because the Bible says you shouldn't lift a hand towards God's servant. 
So just that little bit of conviction came. He actually came and said to Saul, Saul, I'm basically, I'm sorry for what I did. I, I went against my conscience and that's not a good thing. When you feel that conviction, do not wait. You say, that was wrong. That's not who I am. I can change by the power of God. This is what I want to do. Respond to the conviction in your life and make sure you do that. When you adopt these changes, it's incredible what can go on. Then it says, let all build... Uh, it gives you basically two descriptions. You could live this lifestyle of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, put it away from you. That's the old life. Or you can now live the new life. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And if you look at that word for forgiving, it's even just a, a more incredible word. It comes from the word grace that we get, gracing one another. So it's not just the idea of forgiveness, although it's included in there. But just read the book of Ephesians and look at all the grace that God gave us. Not just forgiveness of sins, blessings in heaven, blessings here on earth. It's, it's all encompassing when you look at that word. It's just, it's just beautiful. That's the way that you should start to live if you live this life of repentance. Uh, have you ever heard of the, the Fosbury flop? Anybody heard of that? Yeah, Fosbury flop. He was a uh, guy who did track and field back in the day uh, to get over the, the high jump. I think it is, right? High jump? They used to do, I have no idea how they did this, and I saw some of these things on YouTube. It is crazy. They used to do scissor kicks over the, the high jump. Like, that's how people used to jump over, and they did, I would try to do it, but just bad things would happen if I did a scissor kick right here. They scissor kicked over it, and they would get, you know, a certain amount of feet, because physically, you can only go so far when you do that. This kid couldn't do that very well, so he created the move that everybody knows now, where you plant, jump, and you flop over where your back goes over and your legs kick up over. He set the Olympic record by doing that because he switched the old way and he adopted a new way. He set uh, an Olympic gold record. It's what we're talking about in living lives with people in our home, in our church, in our small groups. We're not doing things the old way. That, that didn't get it done. We're doing things this new way, and it's incredible the things that God can do if we begin to adopt what he's telling us to do by living a life of repentance. So let's you and I this week, especially in our homes, adopt this mindset so that as we move forward, we'll honor God in all that we do. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just think of what the psalmist says, let the words of our mouth and meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer, please may that be true in our homes so that as we walk away from here, Father, we will be changed people ready to live for your glory and experiencing the, the gracious benefit that you give to us in our marriages. Please help us to do that, God. We beg this in Jesus' name. Amen.